In the early morning hours of June 30th, 1992, in Fresno, California, the lives of Mike and Sharon Reynolds were changed forever. That night, their only daughter, Kimber, was shot in the head during a robbery attempt outside of their home, outside of their restaurant, excuse me, two miles from their home. Kimber died the next day as a result of her injuries. After Kimber's death, Mike Reynolds immediately went on local news broadcasts to plead for people to turn in those who were guilty. 48 hours later, the two men who committed the heinous crime were apprehended. Now, even though the murderers had been captured, Reynolds still had a job to do. He was unsatisfied. A a few months after his daughter had died, he gathered attorneys and and, uh, judges and community leaders to try to figure out a way to fix this problem of repeated crime. After hearing the stories from legal experts, Reynolds came to the conclusion that the only way out of this was stricter punishment for repeat felons, both as a deterrent and as a way to get dangerous people off the streets. This was the beginning of what's commonly known as three strikes rule. It called for a minimum sentence of 25 years in prison for third-time felony offenders. And the movement gained supporters after this. But it was the murder of another young girl that brought the attention to the entire country. On October 1st, 1993, a 12-year-old girl named Polly Class was abducted as she was in a slumber party at her friend's house. The man came into the, the bedroom and put pillowcases over the girls' heads and bound their hands together and told them to count to a thousand, and he took Polly away. A nationwide search was on for her, and her father, Mark, became the face of the search, pleading for her return. Unfortunately, the kidnapper took Polly to a field and killed her in a rural area some distance away from her home. On December 4th, uh, two months after the kidnapping, the killer admitted to the crime and gave the location of the grave. Kimber Reynolds' father, Mike, made a promise to himself that he would seek justice for his daughter. And like Reynolds, Mark Class began a, a crusade to make the world safer, and he would often appear on television programs and news reports, pleading for stricter justice so that not another father would have to bury their child. Reynolds and Class, though separated by more than a year and a few hundred miles, experienced tragedies that words can't express. They lost their daughters that they loved and protected with everything that they had. But evil men, with no regard for the well-being of others, took these two little girls, their lives, into their hands And not only did they murder those children, they scarred the lives of everyone in their family and all their friends. In 1994, the three strikes measure was passed overwhelmingly by the citizens of California. Now, the question is, why did these two men fight so hard for this? There was nothing they could do to get their daughters back. There was nothing they could do, but they understood the need to fight for justice. Their daughters deserved it and demanded it. They understood the pain of losing a child, and they wanted to do everything they could to prevent that from happening to anyone else. And we would all likely do the same if we were in the same situation. Why? Because unless we are so callous and indifferent to human suffering, our sense of justice, of right and of wrong, is strong in us to make us fight. We can ignore it or we can mute it. 
We can run away from it. But the fact is that we have all been given an understanding of right and wrong. Now, it needs to be developed, of course. We, we all have consciences that lead us to, to, to know that something is right or wrong. But we all live on this continuum. What's right, what's wrong? Who gets to determine what's right and who's wrong, what's wrong? Now, but we would all say that what happened to these two girls, kidnapping and murdering innocent girls, is without a doubt wrong. And that's why these two fathers have fought so hard to get bad guys off the street. They not only understand right and wrong, but they've experienced the suffering that comes from it. But as time passed, this mandatory 25-year sentencing came with a great deal of controversy. A young man stole a piece of pizza, and while normally that wouldn't be a big deal, this was his third strike, and it sent him to jail for the rest of his life. There were other examples of the law being misapplied or judges having their hands tied and having to give out these uh, extremely long sentences for crimes that didn't demand it. And this led to the people of California in 1994 voting to make some amendments to this law so that those who commit nonviolent acts won't fall into this system. And as we look back, as we've been doing for the last two weeks and today and the next week in Obadiah, we're, we're seeing punishments given that make us wonder, does it fit the crime? Because this is what the, the, the third strikes law uh, it is spending the rest of your life in jail for stealing a slice of pizza, a correct punishment. No. And so everything in our hearts and minds, we read Obadiah and we're thinking, God is promising his wrath to come down on this nation. How can that fit the crimes of what they've done? Well, as we look back at the, the history between these two, we wonder, does it fit the crime? We believe that justice is good, but we believe that there's different outcomes from different acts. See, none of us would demand the death penalty for someone stealing a pack of gum. That would be extreme, cruel, and unusual. But we also wouldn't want that to go unpunished either. The thief needs to see that his or her actions have consequences so that the small theft doesn't become a bigger problem. Now, see, this is one of the things that we see through the Old Testament. We see God's wrath being promised, that, that people will be destroyed. God promises this. And so often we tend to go and think about maybe our neighbor that doesn't know Christ. Our family member who has rejected the gospel. And we think, we don't want God's wrath being poured out on them. We don't want them to be destroyed. So we say, well, this sounds a little harsh. As I've read through the Bible, I've struggled with these. I've struggled with the wrath of God, the idea of the wrath of God. Now, I don't struggle with what's going to happen in the end. I don't struggle with God's wrath being poured out on all of humanity that rejects him. I don't struggle with that, but I'm reading here, there's women and children, non-military people who are going to be cut down. And I struggle with that. And so uh, I went with, uh, to one of my pastors at one point, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm really struggling with this. And he said, well, I just look at the Old Testament as history. 
And I wasn't satisfied. I, I, I knew God was loving, but then I, I read things that seem to be out of place of uh, God's story of love. I said, isn't God merciful? Isn't God full of grace? What about love for the sinner? What, what about love for me when I didn't deserve it? How, how could I balance or reconcile these two extremes? And this answer that I got from this pastor was disheartening and frustrating. It, it was as if he was saying, well, I, I know that God in the Old Testament doesn't seem like the God in the New Testament, but this is the only way I can reconcile this. This led me to believe that I had to choose between one of two conclusions. Either God's character has changed, or the Old Testament is somehow less Bible than the New Testament. Those, those were the two conclusions that I, I felt like I had to choose from. And the first one, I know that God doesn't change. Malachi 3, for I the Lord do not change. Black and white, it's very clear, it's, you can't argue it. The second conclusion was that the Old Testament was somehow less Bible than the New, and that's what took root in my heart. It took years to get past this, and I realized that at times the Old Testament sure seems bloodier than the New Testament. It's still God's Word. God's character has never changed. The, the same Jesus that died for sinners on the cross is the same one that was present at creation and that oversaw everything that happened in the Old Testament. See, I understand that books like Obadiah may be troubling. It's a promise from God to destroy an entire nation of people. And that's difficult. And I want you to know that you're not an unfaithful Christian if you question this. If this, if this makes you struggle and squirm a little bit, you're not somehow less of a believer, less of a follower of Christ. You're merely trying to wrestle with what you're seeing in the text. It's natural. However, it can lead you astray if you lose sight of God's sovereignty. The fact that he has supreme power over everything and his providence, his care over the world. The answers to these questions are not found in outside books, but they're found in the study of who God is and what a perfect God demands from his people, from his creation. So my goal overall in this study, but specifically today, is to leave you here in awe of God. One of the, one of the things that people have said about a good preacher, a good preacher, uh, uh, often people will say, well, yeah, a good preacher, I want to leave church saying, that was a great preacher. That's not the mark of a good preacher, that's the mark of a good speaker. The mark of a good preacher is the minute that you leave, you say, we have a great God. And so I want you to see this in the book of Obadiah, a book that you probably haven't read, you probably have never heard preached, but has a character study of who God is. Now in this text this morning, we see a lot of accusations coming from the prophet Obadiah. The warnings given to Edom carried with them serious consequences. Now, it's interesting to know that this is the only book of the Bible that is not specifically addressed to God's people or to humanity in general. The book of Obadiah is a letter, a prophecy written to the enemies of God. The enemies of God's people. But even though this prophecy was addressed to Edom, the readers would have been Israel. 
And you say, well, why, why would Obadiah write to Edom knowing that Edom's probably never going to read this? Because God is giving hope to people who were hopeless. God, God was saying, I've heard your cries. I hear you. Here's what's going to happen. Israel would have received incredible comfort in this. You, you could feel the emotional high that they would have received as Obadiah, a prophet of God, would have given them this message that they needed to hear. God's saying, look, I know you're down right now. I, I know you've been hurt and persecuted for the faith, but times will change. This will not last forever. Things will get better. You will come out victorious in the end. Watch what I do to those who harm you. This is the promise that God has given to his people. The Israelites who read this would have remembered their long history with Edom, that this goes back thousands of years. They would have remembered in Rebekah's womb, the bitter rivalry, rivalry between Jacob and Esau began. They would have remembered that uh, Jacob robbed Esau. He took his birthright for a bowl of stew. They would have remembered this battle between people that ha has gone on ever since. And the Edomites were the descendants of Esau. And so they carried a chip on their shoulder. And they remember. Many years have passed, but Edom, because of this remembrance, continues to torment Israel. They, 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 now that they see that God's promise is coming, Israel sees this, that, that all of this will one day be resolved. And Obadiah promises the people that God will right all the wrongs and Israel's suffering will stop. Now that, that should bring people great comfort as, as they're reading this. They're, they're suffering, they're being attacked, they're, their safety and security is not even a, a, a there, and they're struggling to believe that God is going to protect them. Where, where is God? For hundreds of years we've suffered. For hundreds of years we've prayed to you, God, and nothing. And so some of you are thinking right now, and I know you are, because I'm thinking the same thing. God, I've prayed for, for freedom. God, I've prayed for victory. I've prayed for peace. I've prayed for unity. I've prayed for all of these things. God, where is it? Why, why haven't I received any of that? God, I've been faithful to you. Where have you been? And sometimes we find ourselves in the same situation that Israel was in. We feel like we're attacked on all different fronts from every side. Different reasons for the attacks, but we constantly feel like we're, we're having arrows shot at us from all around. And we wonder, where, where is God? The Israelites, hundreds of years that they endured. Most of the people who would have read this letter never even imagined the idea that this could ever happen. The, the people who would have received this letter almost, almost certainly would have never been there when actually this was brought to fruition, when it actually came true. So they were given hope, but not on their timetable. God's saying, Israel, 
I'm going to do this, but my, my way, not yours. Be patient. And I start thinking through, there's really not that much difference between the Israelites in Obadiah and us. Because we want freedom now. We want uh, freedom from all of those things that, that hold us down or that pull us back. We want those to be taken off of us so that we can live the way that we want to live. And God says, that's not how it works. This is not your decision. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? And so the people of Israel were certainly struggling. Many would have doubted. And they get this, this promise that God will fix it. And Obadiah gives charges against Edom. So what are these charges? Verses 10 and 11, we see Obadiah telling Edom that God will judge them for their violence toward his people. This violence took place over a long period of time, uh, but one of the most notorious was when Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar invaded Jerusalem, the Edomites stood by and watched and captured the people of God as they were fleeing the city. Psalm 137 is a reference to this. It says this, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres. From there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Do you remember the Herods in the New Testament? Herod the Great tried to kill Jesus as a baby boy, so he slaughtered all of the boys two years and under. Herod Antipas murdered John the Baptist. Herod Agrippa killed James and tried to kill Peter. These Herods were Edomites. The, the, these were the descendants of the people that we're reading about in Obadiah. They're not good people. This wasn't just another nation of mostly peaceful people. These were brutes and bullies and savages. The first indictment that we see is that Edom stood by while Jerusalem fell at the hands of the Babylonians. Edom's non-involvement in this means that they took the sides of the Babylonians. Listen, there are moments in our life where not taking a side means that you are taking a side. There are moments in our life where neutrality is not an option. For the Edomites, they knew, because God has told every single person, given us a conscience to know what is right or what's wrong. They knew these people are suffering, we need to help them, and instead they sent them back to their captors. They're not neutral. And then in verses 12 through 14, we see a list of eight things that God commands Edom not to do. One writer describes the impact of Obadiah's language and the, and the way that the 
uh, uh, Israelites would have heard this as this. The cadence is that of an incessant beat of a drummer leading the troops into battle. So you see this build up. You, you've seen films where the, the, the armies line up and there's a drummer and it is frightening because the other side knows what's coming. Both sides know that they're probably not going to come out of this alive. This terror that builds up. And Obadiah is saying, building upon building upon building, you will fall. This kind of cadence, this kind of speaking uh, is similar to what uh, Martin Luther King Jr. gave at the speech on the Lincoln Memorial in 1963. One of the greatest speeches ever made where he repeated, I have a dream, or, or let freedom ring over and over. He was building the idea to, to grab people and to, to pull them in so that they listened and hung on every single word that he had to say. And Obadiah is doing the same thing. Same technique. He's giving uh, hope by motivating the Israelites to stand firm. You feel like you're about to lose. You feel like your life is over. You feel like none of this matters anymore. I'm giving you hope. Obadiah gives the following warnings to Edom. Don't gloat when Israel is suffering. Don't rejoice when they fall to ruin. And don't boast when they are in trouble. This is a, a response to what Edom has already done. Now as you're reading this, knowing what's going to happen, there may be this feeling in your stomach. This, this kind of a sick feeling. These, these bullies who prey on the weaknesses of others when they see an opportunity to inflict damage, they jump in and inflict more harm. You know what that sick feeling is? It's a feeling of decency. It's a feeling of humanity. It, it's, a, it's a knowledge that doing the right thing sometimes comes as a sacrifice, but it's still the right thing to do no matter what. If you have children, you will remember when they were little and kids tend to push each other around and... and I was a Sunday school volunteer in a Sunday school class as a youth pastor. They needed an adult. And my oldest son was in this Sunday school class. He was maybe two. And some bigger two-year-old came and shoved him down on the ground because he wanted a toy that he had. And I'm just going to be honest, I didn't do it. But I wanted to go shove that little two-year-old down too because he, he treated my son inappropriately, right? He, he pushed my little sweet two-year-old down on the ground and took the toy right out of his hand. And I wanted to go do the same thing to him. Why? Not because I had anything wrong with that two-year-old, but that I saw something that was wrong. I saw a minor injustice happen. And it bothered me. It irritated me to the point where I never went back in that classroom again because I don't want to push a two-year-old down. Because my sense of injustice, the, the idea of someone bullying someone that I cared about bothered me to no end. The sick feeling. And then you start to think, who, who is Obadiah? Who, who are the people that are reading this? They are God's people. That God says, you are mine. From among all the other nations of the world, you are mine. They are his people. 
He chose them to be his people. And here, they're being hurt by Edom. So you say, God, come quickly. Fix this. Rescue your people. Make right what is wrong. Isn't that our cry too? That we, we beg God, take this away, take this burden off of me. Lord, send your son quickly, please. And then in verse 13, three prohibitions are given. Babylon had knocked the gates of Jerusalem over as they attacked. And now Edom comes right behind to take advantage of the situation. The warnings from Obadiah are this. Do not enter the city, do not gloat over the disaster, and do not loot Jerusalem's wealth. Again, they're guilty of this already. Edom is a bully, but then in verse 14, they are no better than scavengers. I remember a story from a few years ago that took place in Chicago, um, and this was all caught on camera. A man was standing on the street corner and someone had come behind him and punched him, uh, had blindsided him, knocking the man out on the ground. And then the video shows two men coming up and rummaging through all of his belongings to take everything away from this man who's knocked out. But it gets worse. People were walking by, doing nothing. And the man laid in the street was then run over by a taxi cab and killed. The people who pass by bear guilt that they didn't punch the man, they didn't steal anything from the man, they didn't throw him in front of the taxi, but they walked by and let that man die. They didn't stop traffic, they didn't pull him to the side. They acted as if he was worth nothing. Obadiah is giving a warning to Edom that their lack of human decency is piling judgment upon them. And then in verse 14, we see the final two prohibitions. Don't wait to catch, don't wait to catch those escaping, and don't hand them over to the Babylonians. Again, they've done it already. This is, this is their guilt is already a, a, a compounding on them. They were a nation of agitators. They were bullies who only looked out for themselves, did not care at all about the well-being of others. And we've seen in the first 10 verses of the book of what God is going to do to them because of this. And so here's kind of circling back. What should the punishment be for Edom? The answer is exactly what they received. Sounds harsh from our human perspective. It is. It's harsh. Except when we know that we're the ones who've been wronged. See, I'm convinced more and more as I read through the Old Testament prophets and I see God's hand of judgment being brought down on people. I'm struggling less and less with this. And what helped me, and it may help you, is to think about what your response would be is if you were the one that was harmed. If you were the one who was victimized. What is it that we demand? We demand justice, right? And, and, and to be truthful, there is a, a certainly a fine line between justice and vengeance, between justice and revenge. 
And sometimes that line is, is hard to walk on and sometimes we straddle it. But, but if we are the victims or if someone that we love and care about is victimized, we demand justice. But when we're the perpetrators, when we're the ones who've done something wrong, what do we demand? Not justice. Mercy. Grace. We, we plead. If you've, if you've watched uh, proceedings from, from court cases on TV, what often happens when the, 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 the guilty, the one who is, has been found guilty, stands before the court, and what do they do? They often beg for a lighter sentence. See, when we look at it from our own perspective, we know that those who have hurt us, we demand swift justice, immediate swift justice. And I think the reason for it is because we've been given that by God. We know what is right and what's wrong. We know justice and injustice. We experience that and it comes out. But here's the, the question. Was this fair? Was it right? Was what is going to happen to Edom appropriate? This is the the question that stands before us and, and most of the, the minor prophets, most of the prophets in general uh, in the Old Testament, because it sounds like, without digging through it, it sounds often like God is just angry at everyone. And we say, well, where's the love? Where's the kindness and compassion and, and mercy? See, I think what our problem is and my problem is, and, and probably all of us, is that we often mistake our own definition of love with God's perfect definition of love. And, and our understanding of wrath with God's understanding or enactment of wrath. See, we are told in Scripture, do not be angry. Right? We, we've seen it. We, do not lose your temper. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Right? We, we're told this, but then we see that God himself is angry with people. And this messes people up, talking about the wrath of God. We sing a song in Christ Alone where it talks about the wrath of God was satisfied, and there is entire denominations that have removed that line from the way they sing that song. Because it made him feel uncomfortable. But you can't deny it. You read through the Old Testament and in the New, and you see the wrath of God being proclaimed. See, God's anger is perfect. That's the difference. His love is perfect, which is also the difference between us and God. There, there is a, a, a difference between how we respond in love and anger versus how God responds in love and anger. God's anger is perfect and just, and it doesn't change. It's not based on circumstances like ours is. God's anger is towards sin, and then by definition, by, uh, given towards sinners as well. See, God created a perfect world. He created man, and he created woman, and he created them so that his glory would shine brighter. And he gave them everything that they needed, everything that they could have wanted, but there was something that they desired that they couldn't have. God says you can have anything that you want, eat whatever you want, but do not eat of this one tree. Satan comes in, tempts them, they give in. 
They weren't satisfied with the provision of God. And what happens? They went after the one thing they weren't allowed to. The one thing God said, don't touch. They disobeyed God, and they were banished, and every single human being after that suffers from the fall. This is our story. God has given us life and all the joys that come with being one of his children. See, you understand that the Christian life is not easy and persecution will come, but there is freedom in Christ. It's not about following a set of rules perfectly because you know you can't. It's about following the one who did follow those rules perfectly. And through the life and death of that one person, Jesus, you understand what living life to the fullest really means. It's not about jumping out of an airplane, climbing a mountain, fancy vacations, big houses. It's freedom from guilt. Freedom from God's wrath that is promised. And that only comes through faith in Christ. And the gospel tells us that God sent, uh, loved us so much that he sent his son to die a gruesome death so that we wouldn't have to. He loved us so much that he allowed his, the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, to be beaten, mocked, murdered, and to become a swear word. To be blasphemed. So that we could be made right with him. He did all of that so that when a sinner comes to him in repentance and faith, the angels rejoice. God's glory shines through his creation. What love God has for his creation. So when it's put in that terms, when you think of all that God has done for humanity and all that God has given to each and every single one of us, Christian and not, and you see God's gift of salvation that's given to his followers and you see God's common grace that's given on to everyone, the rain falls on the unjust and the just equally, you see this and you wonder, how can anybody ever reject? How can anybody do what Edom did? Here's the problem. What does God do to those who have tried their best to remove him off his throne and to put themselves there in his place? Think about the ancient world. What does a king do when usurpers attempt to remove the king? The king comes down swiftly, doesn't he? with a heavy hand, to make sure that everyone knows this is not happening. This is my kingdom. There's not room for two people on the throne. This is mine. Put it this way, God's response when Israel was being persecuted and abused makes perfect sense. Edom could have gotten on their knees and repented. We know they didn't, but they could have. They, they could have worked to, to bring justice to the situation so that all of those things that they took, they could have returned. All of the abuse that they gave to Israel, they could have stopped. They could have sought out reconciliation, but they, they chose not to. So what does God do then? Yes, God is loving. But being loving doesn't mean that God lets sin go unpunished. See, we must be consistent in God's character. God is loving, but God will also defeat his enemies. God is caring, 
but evil must be punished. Otherwise, God would cease to be holy and perfect. And one thing that God cannot do is go against his character. See, some of us get uncomfortable when we read passages like this. The, the promise of God's wrath and his vengeance. But that's because we have it all wrong. God's wrath and vengeance is perfect and just, and those are the things that we should celebrate. We're not celebrating for the fact that people will suffer. That's not what we're celebrating. But we are celebrating that right will be done. Justice will be served. I've listened to family members of victims of murder. And they often say that after the judgment comes, is there's, it's not certainly not a time to celebrate. But there is a weight that's been removed. They say, now I can rest. Closure, right? We hear that word. Why? Because justice has been served. Those who are guilty are punished. Those who have hurt people will not hurt people again. Wrong, as best as possible, a little taste of what God's going to do, but still tainted, is now made right. The judicial system gets things wrong. Sometimes the punishments are too severe, sometimes they're not severe enough. But it all points us in the direction that one day God, as the judge, will make his verdict. He's promised it to us. And he said, Edom is guilty, and it's just a matter of time till it comes. And this, this should give us great hope as Christians today, that, that Obadiah is not written directly to us, but it is the same God who is righteous and just and always does what is true and good. This is who God is. Even if it makes us uncomfortable, God is a warrior God who defends the weak and the helpless. He does not turn a blind eye to sin or injustice. He does not allow evil to win, and he does not change. The God that we sing about and preach about is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. The same God in Obadiah is the same God in John. And it is the same God in Revelation. Do not be discouraged by these passages that talk about God's wrath. And this sounds counterintuitive, but embrace it. Embrace the wrath of God as the way that God makes all things new and right. Let this show you the glory of God and how the Bible is a testament to the fact that God keeps his promises and he always does the right thing. Would you pray with me? Father, as we 